This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Mark McKenna, and I'm an associate professor of law at Notre Dame Law School. The Owning Markets article is actually the second of two articles that I wrote with Mark Wemley at the Stanford Law School. That The first of which was called uh, Irrelevant Confusion, and the, the goal of that piece was to try to focus on the area of trademark law called sponsorship or affiliation confusion, which is, was, is in our view, the area where that has given rise to most of trademark law's expansion. And so we were trying to come up with a way of thinking about which of the cases that are now thought of as sponsorship or affiliation cases are really cases that seem legitimate to us as, tra- as a matter of trademark law and which are not, and, and can we come up with a formulation that makes sense out of that distinction. And so along the way, we're making some assumptions about what we thought were legitimate arguments for legitimate bases for trademark regulation. One we put to the side because we knew we were going to do something else on it is an argument that really is kind of strikingly different than most of the arguments that are typically made in support of, of trademark rights, but that our sense was are a set of arguments that are actually motivating courts in a lot of cases and that though they don't get paid much attention to on the theoretical level, they are practically significant. So those two in particular are Arguments that the defendant's use of a mark somehow interferes with the plaintiff's ability to expand use of its own mark. So the easy example of that would be somebody uses the mark Apple for something that's not computers but that maybe is reasonably closely related to computers like you know digital cameras or something. And one argument that is sometimes made for Apple being able to stop that is that will interfere with Apple's own ability to expand its market to include digital cameras. And then a kind of related argument is just what we think of as just a naked free riding argument, which is just nobody else should be able to use Apple for those kind of goods, regardless of its impact on Apple's ability to expand and regardless of how it harms Apple, because it's just free riding on value that Apple created. So these are both kinds of arguments that we find really unpersuasive and then in a lot of places in legal literature, in a trademark literature in particular, they've been kind of dismissed out of hand. And we wanted to give kind of a sustained treatment to explaining why we thought those were not legitimate bases for trademark law, because we thought, you know, notwithstanding the kind of dismissiveness they get in, in legal theory, we see them popping up in lots of cases, and that may, that is at least a partial explanation for many of the expansive doctrines that we've gotten recently. So one example is the one I just gave about at the Apple digital cameras. And so you, Apple might say, for example, if somebody else uses Apple for digital cameras, that preempts our ability to expand with use of the Apple mark into the digital camera area. So that kind of preempts a market position that we would like to have, right? So another example could be along sort of geographic lines. There have been various times in trademark law a bunch of cases about these, like I start using a mark in California, someone else starts using it in in Nevada, and it prevents me from expanding. And right, and it's, not, it's not really right to say that it prevents the mark owner from expanding because they're perfectly entitled to expand still. It's just it prevents them from expanding using the same mark because presumptively the other party would then have priority in that market. So that's sort of a concrete example of market preemption. You see kind of a, a more theoretical version of market preemption, which might be even if we don't have any interest in going into that market, the negative goodwill that could arise from the fact that somebody else is using the market in a different area 
either because the mark is bad or just because people now think it's in so many different places might prevent us from going other places, even if we don't want to go into the digital market, because consumers won't see those as good fits anymore. So that, you know, there's a lot of good marketing literature about uh, when brand extensions work, it's because consumers tend to think that it's into a product market that's a good fit for your brand because it's either capitalizes on expertise that your employees might already have or because it fits similar sort of need or something. So there needs to be some sort of fit. And if the third party or the defendant's use is in an area that doesn't fit, then you could imagine at least making an argument that that has some negative repercussions on their ability, the mark owner's ability to expand into other markets, you know, other third markets even beyond the two that are at issue. So I think we would probably say that free riding isn't itself an injury, but this is an argument that's made. So that would be, you know, an argument along the lines of Apple Computer, assume it wants to stay in the computer market. It doesn't have any real intention of expanding somewhere else. But somebody comes along and make Apple digital cameras or something like that. You might say that even independent of the effect it has on their ability to expand, lots of people have an instinctive reaction that the only reason you might want to use the Apple mark in some other market is because people already know the Apple mark because it's a famous mark, and that that's just free riding on effort, right? And our point is just that actually free riding is really ubiquitous in, across a, a whole bunch of different sorts of uh, areas of commerce and intellectual property, and that by itself it's not enough to justify a set of rights. It's just free riding is really competition in most places, and so you need a good reason to say this particular form of free riding causes problems. And to us, once we start having that conversation, that sounds a lot more like the kind of theory we, you hear in patent and copyright than you do in trademark. And, that, and in patent and copyright, when you ask what's the harm here, usually it's followed by an explanation of sort of a public good story, which is the reason free riding is bad here is because it's costly for the copyright owner to create the content in the first place. If everybody could free ride on that value, it would be, make it difficult for the creator himself to recoup the value, which might destroy the incentive to create it in the first place. And in our view, that just doesn't map well onto trademark law, that there's lots of incentive to create marks and there's lots of incentive to create brands. Most of that incentive is captured within the market that you use the mark. So it's a very nominal additional incentive effect, if anything. And giving into that kind of an argument has lots of negative consequences, too. So that however attractive it might seem intuitively, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do in the context of, uh, of trademark law. In our view, saying that the defendant is free riding is just an irrelevant consideration because, first of all, it's, it's pretty conclusory, but second of all, it just really doesn't have anything to do with what the scope of the rights should be, that you need to be able to tie it to some relevant harm and that free writing do doesn't do that. And in fact, the courts have kind of intuitively responded to free writing claims, has allowed them to reach out and expand trademark law to areas that it hadn't existed before, largely because even if you have to make some modifications to trademark doctrine, it seems legitimate to them to do it because you're talking about a bad guy actor who's the defendant. You know, just to be clear that if you were to sort of pair this up with our irrelevant confusion article, we're not arguing that anybody who uses a mark for goods that are different at all from the plaintiff should be able to do that, that the plaintiff shouldn't be able to stop those rights. That that was actually the law a long time ago for, for quite a long time. There needed to be in direct competition. 
the theory we tried to articulate in Irrelevant Confusion is that the right question should be whether consumers are likely to, when they see the defendant's good, to think that the plaintiff is responsible for the quality of those goods. So that if people, when they see digital cameras that say Apple on them, are likely to think that the Apple computer company is responsible for the quality of them, and to me that seems like a plausible argument in that circumstance, then that should be within the legitimate range of a, a party's trademark rights, but not because of any market preemption or free riding, but because of the harm that it would cause to consumers if they weren't able to rely on that signal of quality representation. So once you start talking about goods and services, though, that are outside of that area where it's difficult to believe that consumers would think that the mark owner is responsible for the quality, even if they have some thought that maybe it needed to be licensed or something like that or some other kind of remote level of association, that those ought to be too far. Putting both of these things together, the point we've tried to make is that the idea of the trademark injury section at the end of our uh, owning markets paper is to say, anytime you want to be able to claim as a plaintiff that the defendant's use of a mark harms you, you should have to say more than that. You should have to say more than this harms me. You should have to be able to describe that harm in a particular way. And this is not quite exactly the same, but analogous to what we do in antitrust law, where you say to a plaintiff, okay, you've alleged that the defendant's actions here harm you, but we need to know more than that. We need to know that this is the kind of harm that antitrust law is intended to address, and that we think that trademark law would benefit if it had a similar sort of thing that you required a plaintiff to say, not only is this a harm, but this is a harm that is the kind of thing trademark law should address because it poses risk to consumers and their ability to rely on quality signals in the marketplace, or it you know, it poses a risk of a direct substitution of a sale or something. But it should be tied to a kind of harm that should be recognized as a, uh, one of the policy reasons for having trademark law, and not just it harms us in some unidentified way, which we think a lot of the market preemption and free riding arguments are just these harm us in some way. And we think that we, we would benefit if courts required parties making those arguments to tie that harm to the kind of harm that trademark law should prevent. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.